Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 79. Oh, the weather outside is... This episode of Craftlit brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Hello, it is I, and I am coming to you once again, you won't believe it, with a cold. Yes, this time my charming little thing too came home ill and uh, promptly passed it on to mom. I think my my weakened lungs are, um, how you say, weak. And uh, evidently anything I come into contact with this holiday season is going to be with me for a little while. So, so far I'm able to, you know, swallow and breathe and stay vertical for most of the day. So I think that's pretty good. And uh, I thought I would go ahead and muscle through a podcast tonight because, gosh darn it, we only woke the monster last week. I feel it would be a little unfair for me to cut out on you so quickly. But uh, I am probably going to take at least the next uh, week, maybe two off for the holidays. I'm going to have both kids home and Andrew will be in and out. And uh, I don't really want to kill myself if I'm already getting sick at the drop of not even a very large hat, more like a beret, maybe a scarf. Speaking of scarves, I finished weaving the gorgeous variegated chenille scarves that I made for my sister and her boyfriend slash love of her life who she is in Germany with right now meeting the family I'll keep you updated on that until later um, I I wove them not matching scarves but related scarves so that they each had the same variegated yarn in the background but the solid color changed for one it was a very dark forest green and for the other it was a very dark midnight blue so they look similar but they um, they have their own unique mojo and uh, I'm telling them to open them now because my sister has already gotten sick in Germany. They're in Berlin. And it's a little colder there than it is here. Here it is, um, it's cool, no question. There was ice on, uh, there was some water that froze on top of the trash can last night, so that was very exciting. And during the days it's getting up to around 60, which, you know, isn't that cold. Um, but there is, in, in Tucson, except in the hottest part of summer, there is about a 40 degree, 30 to 40 degree, degree temperature differential during the day that will start at 30 degrees and will wind up at 60, or will start at 40 and will wind up at, well, when it really gets going, 80 or 85. But uh, it, makes, it makes the weather interesting. It also obviously makes it rather easy to get sick. So I made these scarves and I think my sister probably needs to be wearing hers right now, so I'm going to email them later tonight and tell them to go ahead and open the darn things up. I'm also podcasting tonight, instead of under a blanket, I'm podcasting under my clapo tea. And, <laughs> and that may sound kind of strange, but I'll tell you, the glory that is clapo tea is not to be underestimated. I have worn my clapo tea, I think, for two weeks running now, uh, pretty much every day. And in fact, the night before my sister was about to leave, I had it on and she was looking at it longingly. And I said, you need me to knit you one of these, don't you? And she kind of said, yeah, okay. And I do have enough koigu left over, I think, to complete a clapotee for her as well. Um, this this koigu, if you recall, was my, my birthday yarn that I got from my dad. He, he had given me um, quite a number of, really an enormous amount of gorgeous skeins of yarn, but there were, I don't know, three or four that were a, a colorway that I probably wouldn't wear. It actually would look better on my stepmom than me. Um, and I just, I couldn't commit myself to it. And so I went back to the yarn store and they had told him that I could do this, that I could trade stuff in. The yarn store was going out of business starting that Monday. We had my party on Saturday. So the next Monday, I followed my father's directions and I went to the yarn store. And lo and behold, their koigu was cheap. Cheap, 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 cheap. I never, ever could have afforded this scarf otherwise. And, um, or shawl, or scarf, or shawly scarf thing, the clapotee. 
So now I have it, but now... I don't know if you've visited Nitty.com's Winter 2007 issue, but there is a new scarf called, I believe, Janine, that I will, I'm writing myself a note right now, that I will uh, link to in the show notes, because this Janine thing is similar to the Clapotee, but with some really interesting, subtle kind of cabling thing going on. Lots of the dropped stitch stuff, but also, as I said, gorgeous cabling. So now I have to decide... If I should do that for my sister, if I should do another clap tea. I don't know. Who knows? It's all a mystery. Something will happen, though, I am confident. Someone left a note on my Mama O Knits blog where I had a picture of me re-warping the chenille, and they wrote back, one person wrote back and said, wow, you're really brave warping chenille at all, and actually I have not found it to be a problem yet. I think it has to do with the quality of the chenille, and evidently I got, I got the good stuff. But the, the rewarping, it's not so much rewarping as tying on a new warp. Um, I had done that already so that I wouldn't have to go through both slaying and heddling an entirely new warp, which takes me, because I'm not very good at this yet, about two days. And I really don't have two days of, you know, off and on fiddling with a warp. I've, I've got to get moving. I know Stephanie Pearl McPhee is on her schedule and... I haven't checked back with her site because it made me feel so bad, because she is on schedule and I feel like I am nothing but way, way behind. Um, so I didn't have time to rewarp the entire thing. Instead, I'm tying on a new warp and I decided to kind of model up the, um, or muddle up, muddle? Muddle is the effect I'm going for, but I had to muddle the warp with a, a couple of different colors to um, get it to not look exactly like Sydney or Maurice's scarves. So it's not so much rewarping as it is fiddling with the warp, I guess. That's not really accurate either. Oh well. I, um, I am trying desperately to find a way to transfer some of my old audio tapes. Not the really old ones, like Wham! but some other ones from, from the 90s, to, to digital audio. And I had a really brilliant idea that if I could connect the radio stereo system that has the cassette deck in it to my little digital mp3 recorder that I used at SOAR that I could then transfer the audio painlessly and for some reason I am not able to do this with any of the audio machines that I have in the house. I don't know if any of you have managed to do this but if you have please email me and let me know what kind of equipment you used. I'm fascinated and it would be a nice Christmas present for me to be able to give to a couple people some um tapes transferred into CD format. I would be most appreciative. I also, I know that a lot of you have been um, very supportive in the past of, of me homeschooling with my son, Thing One, and, um, and that we've, we've had a lot of difficulty and he's, he's really struggled. And I have some happy news to pass on. Um, we may be transferring him into a local private school here. We may have found a way to find the right kind of school. Very, very small class sizes, very, very good teachers, um, because honestly, you know, they're going to follow up me, so <laughs> so they better be good. But the really cool thing is, one of, the, one of the things that my little boy struggled with so hard in kindergarten was writing, and it has continued to be a really enormous struggle for him, painful at times, and something that's been a, a source of enormous frustration for him. Well, we've been using this Handwriting Without Tears book, which we have found to be wonderful. We liked it quite a lot, but we are now working on Cursive Without Tears. There's a, a little um, kind of a hand-eye coordination, fine motor skill test that they have at the beginning of the book. And once a kid can pass this little, can they draw a line that goes this way kind of test, they're pretty much allowed to go on and start doing cursive. Well, I've been working the last two days with Aaron on his cursive, and it's shocking. His cursive is better than mine. His cursive is so much better than his printing. I don't know if any of you have had, uh, especially boys, but children who've had difficulty with the printing thing, but have found that the cursive thing is simple. But wow, wow, it was great. I'm so excited. So, see, even though I got a cold, it really hasn't been a bad week. And my throat is sore, sure, but my son can write cursive. There's just too many things to be happy about. Well, tis the season after all.
I also had said that this week I was going to announce the November winner for our Genminus Craftlet charm. And I have one. And our winner this time is Lisa from Taos, New Mexico. So Lisa, I'm going to be passing your information on to Genminus, and Genminus will be getting your very own Craftlet charm out to you pronto, because that's just how Jen is. That's also a reminder for any of you who'd like to be entered into our final drawing for a craft lit charm, courtesy of our own resident artist, Jen Minnis. Please donate during the month of December, and on New Year's Day, I will draw a new name out of a hat, and we will have our final winner of the year. I also think that next week, we will have one more incentive for you to donate during the month of December, but I'll, I'll tell you more about that next week. This week, boy do we need to get on with the chapters because we've got some really good ones. Um, we're on to chapter six and we're going to do chapter six and chapter seven today. Chapter six will, as you um, may recall, will pick up exactly where chapter five left off with Victor opening a letter from Elizabeth. So it begins, chapter six begins with no introduction whatsoever. It is the text of uh, Elizabeth's letter. I will tell you a couple of things to listen to. One, the story of Justine matters. Listen to how Justine's family treats her and listen to what happens to Justine. And then know this, there are many scholars who feel that Justine, at least Justine's backstory, is Mary Shelley, which puts an interesting spin on it. And you'll see why today. <laughs> There's also, um, uh, some language things that are going to happen during the course of this book. One is that um, you're going to hear the word oriental and orientalist um, bandied about. And of course, this is just the, the you know, the early 1800s stand in for what people now say is, is East Asian or Asian or Pacific Rim, depending on what part of the Asian continent you're talking about or subcontinent. Um, so I know the language is archaic and I hope it doesn't offend anyone. Um, it certainly wasn't meant to be offensive. Um, and there will be more um, similar kind of archaic constructions that will hit later on in the book. But, but for today, that's the one you're going to hear. Um, I also want to draw your attention to how very, very important Clerval is as both a foil, a character foil, and a friend. You are supposed to notice clearly the difference between Victor and Clerval and the difference is palpable. Some of you have already written to me about what a, what a pig Victor is. In fact, I, I will be reading a letter to you from, from one of our Craftlet listeners about Victor and what a schmuck he is. Um, but this, this first chapter is not terribly long, but it does have this letter from Elizabeth. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that um, it, it, brings, it brings into question the whole reliable narrator question. Um, it brings into question the whole question of the reliable narrator. That's just lousy grammar. I'm so sorry to have subjected you to that. Um, we've talked about reliable narrators in the past, and this is another one of those moments. Victor is allegedly telling this story to Walton. There is not a chance that he would have either the letter on his body in a way that he would be able to read it to Walton, nor would he have been able to commit it to memory well, he, I guess he could have, but this wouldn't have been the letter that he would have committed to memory. Nor would Walton have been able to write it down verbatim. It's, it's interesting because on the surface, when you hear the letter, you'll think, oh, well, this is great because it opens up the narrative and you get to know what Elizabeth is thinking about and you kind of get to see outside of Victor's really extraordinarily limited scope. And... Um, you get to find out what's what other people are saying, what other people are seeing and doing, and that's wonderful. And this book is, is definitely built on those, um, they're called diegetic levels, the story within a story within a story within a story. Well, that's all well and good. Um, and it certainly makes the book more interesting. But if you're looking at this as literature with a capital, oh my goodness, it's a classic, there are definitely going to be people who point out, well, that's that's impossible. I mean, you couldn't have a verbatim letter in a book that's supposed to be pretty much entirely orally related from one person to another. You know, it's, it's not an epistolary novel where somebody came upon all of these letters and then was able to put them together into a book and 
sell it to you. This is this is all supposed to be Victor telling the story to Walton, and then Walton writing it down, writing down what he remembers, because he says he doesn't take any notes while he's listening to Victor, and then um, sending it to his his uh, relative back in London. So it's it's just something to be aware of, and um, and to know that there's discussion about this. It's not really a big deal, and I certainly don't feel that it interrupts the um, the flow or the importance of the story at all. I think, in fact, um, it, it gives you the emotional edge that you need to have the story do what it inevitably does to you. And on that note, I'm going to read you a comment that we got from Dawn about Frankenstein. She says, while I've read Frankenstein several times in several contexts, it seems I've not read it since having children. Is it crazy that I just had to stop listening because tears are streaming down my face? My heart is aching, imagining the poor innocent monster opening his eyes for the first time only to see horror and rejection, being left alone and confused, hopefully searching out the only connection he has to this world again, only to have the same thing happen. It hurt. I had to stop. This has never hit me this way before. Uncomfortable to get through? Yes. Cursing out Victor as a freaking weenie? Sobbing and wanting to hug the monster and wipe his tears and give him cookies and tuck him in? Um, no. Man, she's good. And it's it's true. I, I have found that um, I'm having a much different reaction to the book as well. And the, the monster waking up scene is, is particularly um, upsetting and traumatic. And of course, that will all come into play again very, very soon. Um... And so without pausing any more before we get to the narrative, I am going to fire up chapter six of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. Little alteration except the growth of our dear children has taken place since you left us. The blue lake and snow-clad mountains, they never change. And I think our placid home and our contented hearts are regulated by the same immutable laws— my trifling occupations take up my time and amuse me, and I am rewarded for any exertions by seeing none but happy, kind faces around me. Since you left us, but one change has taken place in our little household. Do you remember on what occasion Justine Moritz entered our family? Probably you do not. I will relate her history, therefore, in a few words. Madame Moritz... Her mother was a widow with four children, of whom Justine was the third. This girl had always been the favorite of her father, but through a strange perversity, her mother could not endure her, and after the death of Monsieur Moritz, treated her very ill. My aunt observed this, and when Justine was twelve years of age, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house. The Republican institutions of our country have produced simpler and happier manners than those which prevail in the great monarchies that surround it. Hence, there is less distinction between the several classes of its inhabitants, and the lower orders, being neither so poor nor so despised, their manners are more refined and moral. A servant in Geneva does not mean the same thing as a servant in France and England. Justine, thus received in our family, learned the duties of a servant, a condition which, in our fortunate country, does not include the idea of ignorance and a sacrifice of the dignity of a human being. Justine, you may remember, was a great favorite of yours, and I recollect you once remarked that if you were in an ill humor, one glance from Justine could dissipate it, for the same reason that Ariosto gives concerning the beauty of Angelica. She looked so frank-hearted and happy. My aunt conceived a great attachment for her, by which she was induced to give her an education superior to that which she had first intended. This benefit was fully repaid. Justine was the most grateful little creature in the world. I do not mean that she made any professions, I never heard one pass her lips, but you could see by her eyes that she almost adored her protectress. Although her disposition was gay and in many respects inconsiderate, 
yet she paid the greatest attention to every gesture of my aunt. She thought her the model of all excellence and endeavored to imitate her phraseology and manners, so that even now she often reminds me of her. When my dearest aunt died, everyone was too much occupied in their own grief to notice poor Justine, who had attended her during her illness with the most anxious affection. Poor Justine was very ill, but other trials were reserved for her. One by one, her brothers and sister died, and her mother, with the exception of her neglected daughter, was left childless. The conscience of the woman was troubled. She began to think that the deaths of her favorites was a judgment from heaven to chastise her partiality. She was a Roman Catholic, and I believe her confessor confirmed the idea which she had conceived. Accordingly, a few months after your departure for Ingolstadt, Justine was called home by her repentant mother. Poor girl, she wept when she quitted our house. She was much altered since the death of my aunt. Grief had given softness and a winning mildness to her manners, which had before been remarkable for vivacity. Nor was her residence at her mother's house of a nature to restore her gaiety. The poor woman was very vacillating in her repentance. She sometimes begged Justine to forgive her unkindness, but much oftener accused her of having caused the deaths of her brothers and sister. Perpetual fretting at length threw Madame Moritz into a decline, which at first increased her irritability. But she is now at peace forever. She died on the first approach of cold weather at the beginning of this last winter. Justine has just returned to us, and I assure you I love her tenderly. She is very clever and gentle, and extremely pretty. As I mentioned before, her mind and her expression continually remind me of my dear aunt. I must say also a few words to you, my dear cousin, of little darling William. I wish you could see him. He is very tall of his age, with sweet laughing blue eyes, dark eyelashes, and curling hair. When he smiles, two little dimples appear on each cheek, which are rosy with health. He has already had one or two little wives, but Louisa Byron is his favorite, a pretty little girl of five years of age. Now, dear Victor, I dare say you wish to be indulged in a little gossip concerning the good people of Geneva. The pretty Miss Mansfield has already received the congratulatory visits on her approaching marriage with a young Englishman, John Melbourne Esquire. Her ugly sister Manon married Monsieur Duvillard, the rich banker, last autumn. Your favorite schoolfellow, Louis Manoir, has suffered several misfortunes since the departure of Clerval from Geneva. But he has already recovered his spirits and is reported to be on the point of marrying a lively, pretty French woman, Madame Tavernier. She is a widow and much older than Manoir, but she is very much admired and a favorite with everybody. I have written myself into better spirits, dear cousin, but my anxiety returns upon me as I conclude. Write, dearest Victor, one line, one word will be a blessing to us. Ten thousand thanks to Henry for his kindness, his affection, and his many letters. We are sincerely grateful. Adieu, my cousin. Take care of yourself, and I entreat you, write. Elizabeth Lavenza, Geneva, March 18th, 17. Dear, dear Elizabeth, I exclaimed when I had read her letter, I will write instantly and relieve them from the anxiety they must feel. I wrote, and this exertion greatly fatigued me, but my convalescence had commenced and proceeded regularly. In another fortnight, I was able to leave my chamber. One of my first duties on my recovery was to introduce Clerval to the several professors of the university. In doing this, I underwent a kind of rough usage, ill-befitting the wounds that my mind had sustained. 
Ever since the fatal night, the end of my labors and the beginning of my misfortunes, I had conceived a violent antipathy even to the name of natural philosophy. When I was otherwise quite restored to health, the sight of a chemical instrument would renew all the agony of my nervous symptoms. Henry saw this and had removed all my apparatus from my view. He had also changed my apartment, for he perceived that I had acquired a dislike for the room which had previously been my laboratory. But these cares of Clerval were made of no avail when I visited the professors. Monsieur Waldman inflicted torture when he praised, with kindness and warmth, the astonishing progress I had made in the sciences. He soon perceived that I disliked the subject, but not guessing the real cause, he attributed my feelings to modesty and changed the subject from my improvement to the science itself, with a desire, as I evidently saw, of drawing me out. What could I do? He meant to please, and he tormented me. I felt as if he had placed carefully, one by one, in my view, those instruments which were to be afterwards used in putting me to a slow and cruel death. I writhed under his words, yet dared not exhibit the pain I felt. Clerval, whose eyes and feelings were always quick in discerning the sensations of others, declined the subject, alleging in excuse his total ignorance and the conversation took a more general turn. I thanked my friend from my heart, but I did not speak. I saw plainly that he was surprised, but he never attempted to draw my secret from me, and although I loved him with a mixture of affection and reverence that knew no bounds, yet I could never persuade myself to confide in him that event which was so often present to my recollection but which I feared the detail to another would only impress more deeply. Monsieur Crimp was not equally docile, and in my condition at that time of almost insupportable sensitiveness, his harsh, blunt encomiums gave me even more pain than the benevolent approbation of Monsieur Waldman. Damn the fellow, cried he. Why, Monsieur Clerval, I assure you he has outstripped us all. I... Stare, if you please, but it is nevertheless true. A youngster who but a few years ago believed in Cornelius Agrippa as firmly as in the gospel has now set himself at the head of the university. And if he is not soon pulled down, we shall all be out of countenance. Ay, ay, continued he, observing my face expressive of suffering. Monsieur Frankenstein is modest, an excellent quality in a young man. Young men should be diffident of themselves, you know, Monsieur Clerval. I was myself when young, but that wears out in a very short time. Monsieur Cremp had now commenced a eulogy on himself, which happily turned the conversation from a subject that was so annoying to me. Clerval had never sympathized in my tastes for natural science, and his literary pursuits differed wholly from those which had occupied me. He came to the university with the design of making himself complete master of the Oriental languages, and thus he should open a field for the plan of life he had marked out for himself. Resolved to pursue no inglorious career, he turned his eyes toward the east as affording scope for his spirit of enterprise. The Persian, Arabic, and Sanskrit languages engaged his attention, and I was easily induced to enter on the same studies. Idleness had ever been irksome to me, and now that I wished to fly from reflection and hated my former studies, I felt great relief in being the fellow pupil with my friend, and found not only instruction, but consolation in the works of the Orientalists. I did not, like him, attempt a critical knowledge of their dialects, for I did not contemplate making any other use of them than temporary amusement. I read merely to understand their meaning, and they well repaid my labors. Their melancholy is soothing and their joy elevating, to a degree I never experienced in studying the authors of any other country. When you read their writings, life appears to consist in a warm sun and a garden of roses, 
in the smiles and frowns of a fair enemy and the fire that consumes your own heart. How different from the manly and heroical poetry of Greece and Rome. Summer passed away in these occupations, and my return to Geneva was fixed for the latter end of autumn. But being delayed by several accidents, winter and snow arrived. The roads were deemed impassable, and my journey was retarded until the ensuing spring. I felt this delay very bitterly, for I longed to see my native town and my beloved friends. My return had only been delayed so long from an unwillingness to leave Clerval in a strange place before he had become acquainted with any of its inhabitants. The winter, however, was spent cheerfully, and although the spring was uncommonly late, when it came its beauty compensated for its dilatoriness. The month of May had already commenced, and I expected the letter daily which was to fix the date of my departure, when Henry proposed a pedestrian tour in the environs of Ingolstadt, that I might bid a personal farewell to the country I had so long inhabited. I acceded with pleasure to this proposition. I was fond of exercise, and Clerval had always been my favorite companion in the ramble of this nature that I had taken among the scenes of my native country. We passed a fortnight in these perambulations. My health and spirits had long been restored, and they gained additional strength from the salubrious air I breathed, the natural incidents of our progress, and the conversation of my friend. Study had before secluded me from the intercourse of my fellow creatures and rendered me unsocial, but Clerval called forth the better feelings of my heart. He again taught me to love the aspect of nature and the cheerful faces of children. Excellent friend, how sincerely you did love me and endeavor to elevate my mind until it was on a level with your own. A selfish pursuit had cramped and narrowed me until your gentleness and affection warmed and opened my senses. I became the same happy creature who, a few years ago, loved and beloved by all, had no sorrow or care. When happy inanimate nature had the power of bestowing on me the most delightful sensations, a serene sky and verdant fields filled me with ecstasy. The present season was indeed divine. The flowers of spring bloomed in the hedges while those of summer were already in bud. I was undisturbed by thoughts which during the preceding year had pressed upon me, notwithstanding my endeavors to throw them off, with an invincible burden. Henry rejoiced in my gaiety and sincerely sympathized in my feelings. He exerted himself to amuse me while he expressed the sensations that filled his soul. The resources of his mind on this occasion were truly astonishing. His conversation was full of imagination and very often, in imitation of the Persian and Arabic writers, he invented tales of wonderful fancy and passion. At other times, he repeated my favorite poems or drew me out into arguments, which he supported with great ingenuity. We returned to our college on a Sunday afternoon. The peasants were dancing, and everyone we met appeared gay and happy. My own spirits were high, and I bounded along with feelings of unbridled joy and hilarity. This is the end of chapter six. A very happy pastoral moment in the life of Victor Frankenstein. One that it is about to be shattered. So, <clears throat> somewhere between the creation of the monster and what happens in chapter seven, two years will have passed. It doesn't matter so much that you know that as that you aren't shocked by it when somebody mentions it because then you're going to be pulled out of the narrative and you're going to say, wait a minute, when did seven, when did two years pass? Chapter seven is two years later. I sat here and tried to figure it out myself and I'm sure that if I had spent more time on it, I could have, but be that as it may, I'm not going to uh, belabor the fact. I do want to remind you of a couple of logistics. Victor and Clerval's school is in Ingolstadt and... Victor and Clerval's home is in Geneva. This will matter in a moment. 
You've heard that Victor is having a lovely time tromping about the hillside with Clerval, loving nature, which is, again, a very romantic, capital R, thing to do. That, you know, going back into the nature, going back into the nature, that's a joke. When my husband was in Slovakia, the kids would ask him, would you like to go for a walk in the nature? (laughs) And it just stuck. So uh, the whole idea of going out to nature to renew yourself and rejuvenate yourself and purify yourself and cleanse yourself and get rid of all of the, you know, the science and the, um, the urban landscape, such as it was at the time. I know it's still fairly pastoral as far as we're concerned, but, but the, an urban landscape for them, they kind of cleansed and purged themselves of all of that. Well, this is also a moment to discuss the word hubris. Hubris is technically excessive pride. It is also contained, I believe, in the statement, pride goeth before a fall. Hubris is what you are exhibiting when you say, oh, but that's okay, I never make mistakes like that, and then you promptly make that mistake. Victor thinks on whatever level, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, that he has beaten his own illness, the this overarching need, this passion, this addiction to science that he had. Well, there's hubris, which is Victor's main problem, but then there's hamartia, which is sometimes translated as a tragic flaw. You know, with Oedipus, there's always the a, a Aristotelian tragic figure has a tragic flaw. It is the thing that makes them blow it and become a tragic figure. Um, I've also been reading that Hamartia is literally translated as missing the mark, which I thought was interesting because the word sin, as far as I was told, is also uh, a, a phrase or a, a word that means missing the mark. Um, as, as used in archery, that, you know, you were aiming to do it the right way, but you kind of blew it, and it didn't work out so well. So, hamartia and hubris are two things that we are going to be bringing up from time to time for the rest of this book. It just, you just can't help it. There are a couple other things that I need to warn you about that are going to happen in in this uh, this chapter, some of you, I'm sure, were surprised that in the last chapter there was no monster. I mean, we just woke him up, for goodness sake. Where's the monster? You'll get some monster in this. Not a lot, but you'll get some monster. And it's shocking. And you'll wonder what in the world has happened. And you'll find out. Just not today. The other thing that I want to bring your um, your attention to is Mary Shelley's use of light as a symbol. And it's light not just in the illumination sense, as it is in a a kind of an overlapping series of symbolic motifs. You have Walton traveling to the land of eternal light, which obviously he's going to the North Pole when, when it's the summertime, the sun doesn't set up there, or at least not much. So you've got that, but he's also looking for enlightenment. Uh, in his own romantic way, not necessarily scientific enlightenment, but a friend, knowledge, adventure, all of these things. Victor talks about, out of the darkness, this light emerges, and the light is knowledge. And the light, it, it lights him on fire with passion. But that fire, when it's no longer a metaphor and is in fact just fire, fire is dangerous. And playing with fire is dangerous. And Victor has been playing with fire. Victor was playing God. And that brings us to Mary Shelley's subtitle to Frankenstein, uh, or the modern Prometheus. We haven't talked about that a whole lot yet, but I've been writing about Prometheus for one of my one of my day jobs. And there's the whole Prometheus Epimetheus, forethought and afterthought. Now, I seem to have a vague memory that that is, in fact, not how their names actually translate. And I'm sure someone who's listening knows more about this than I do. I could go back into my Greek and Roman classics class and and probably dig up something really amazing. But although I'm interested, and I would love to have someone tell me, it's not the important part here, because Mary Shelley wouldn't have known what it is that we're talking about. Mary Shelley would have known Prometheus and Epimetheus forethought and afterthought. The modern Prometheus is, to, well, no, first, to sum up the story of Prometheus, he tried to give fire to the humans. He tried to do it legitimately, 
by going to Zeus and asking Zeus to, to help him with this project. Zeus denied him because humans are dangerous and you don't mess with humans and you certainly don't give them something like fire. Prometheus felt that it was unfair that all the animals had claws or horns or extraordinary speed or extraordinary size and the poor little humans were just schlubbing along and not doing very well and felt that because they were such an interesting and unique creation and didn't have fur or claws or extraordinary speed that they should have something else. So he steals fire and he brings it back to the humans all the while knowing full well that when he was caught and he would be caught he was going to be punished. So even though he knew that he knew that his sacrifice was more important to the future of mankind than than, you know, being tied to a rock and having his liver pecked out every day by an eagle, which is, in fact, the punishment that he was given. Victor played with fire. Victor decided that he was at least as good as, if not better than, God, because he was human, and yet he could also bestow life. That's the hubris, but that's also the Promethean thing. He thinks that the science he is pursuing, and, and you've heard him talk about how important it is to pursue science, this pure pursuit of science is something that is, um, it's better than all the other disciplines because you can always go farther, you can always learn more, you can stand on the shoulders of those who've come before you and keep going. Whereas, you know, if you're going to study Latin, you pretty much study the same Latin that everybody else has studied, and who cares about that? He... He is trying to bestow a gift on humanity that he thinks will be as important as, say, fire. Of course, he's blinded by the fact that he's lost his mother, and somewhere you know he's thinking, if I could just figure out how this life thing works, I could bring her back. And it doesn't take a genius to go, wow, that's really creepy and wrong. <laughs> that's a really bad zombie movie. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, get out. It's that kind of thing. Victor, however, because this is a tragedy, will not listen to reason and just gets more and more obsessed and passionate about this, this dirty little secret of what he's creating. Um, much as Prometheus probably got, you know, distracted by and, and obsessed by getting fire to the humans because he thought it was the right thing to do. So if this is the parallel Shelley is drawing, then you know very clearly what's going to happen to Victor. I'm not going to say anything else because it's going to take us chapters and chapters to get there. But it's something that you should be thinking about as we approach the middle and then eventually the end of the book that Victor's going to get it somehow, some way, someone's going to get to Victor because you cannot perpetrate an act of hubris as huge as this man did and not pay for it eventually. I think that's all. I've given you, boy, I've given you way, 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 way too much information. I hope, <laughs> I hope if that was overwhelming that you go back and listen to it because there were a bunch of really important things in there. But enough. It is time for chapter seven, our last chapter for today of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. On my return, I found the following letter from my father. My dear Victor, you have probably waited impatiently for a letter to fix the date of your return to us, and I was at first tempted to write only a few lines, merely mentioning the day on which I should expect you. But that would be a cruel kindness, and I dare not do it. What would be your surprise, my son, when you expected a happy and glad welcome to behold on the contrary tears and wretchedness? And how, Victor, can I relate our misfortune? Absence cannot have rendered you callous to our joys and griefs, and how shall I inflict pain on my long-absent son? I wish to prepare you for the woeful news, but I know it is impossible. Even now your eye skims over the page to seek the words which are to convey to you the horrible tidings. William is dead. That sweet child, whose smiles delighted and warmed my heart, who was so gentle yet so gay. Victor, he is murdered. 
I will not attempt to console you, but will simply relate the circumstances of the transaction. Last Thursday, May the 7th, I, my niece, and your two brothers went to walk in Plain Palais. The evening was warm and serene, and we prolonged our walk farther than usual. It was already dusk before we thought of returning, and then we discovered that William and Ernest, who had gone on before, were not to be found. We accordingly rested on a seat until they should return. Presently Ernest came, and inquired if we had seen his brother. He said that he had been playing with him, that William had run away to hide himself, and that he vainly sought for him, and afterwards he waited a long time, but that he did not return. This account rather alarmed us, and we continued to search for him until night fell, when Elizabeth conjectured that he might have returned to the house. He was not there. We returned again with torches, for I could not rest when I thought that my sweet boy had lost himself, and was exposed to all the damps and dews of night. Elizabeth also suffered extreme anguish. About five in the morning I discovered my lovely boy, whom the night before I had seen blooming and active in health, stretched on the grass, livid and motionless. The print of the murder's finger was on his neck. He was conveyed home, and the anguish that was visible in my countenance betrayed the secret to Elizabeth. She was very earnest to see the corpse. At first I attempted to prevent her, but she persisted, and entering the room where it lay, hastily examined the neck of the victim, and clasping her hands exclaimed, "Oh God, I have murdered my darling child! She fainted, and was restored with extreme difficulty. When she again lived, it was only to weep and sigh. She told me that that same evening William had teased her to let him wear a very valuable miniature which she possessed of your mother. This picture is gone, and was doubtless the temptation which urged the murderer to the deed. We have no trace of him at present, although our exertions to discover him are unremitted, but they will not restore my beloved William. Come, dearest Victor, you alone can console Elizabeth. She weeps continually and accuses herself unjustly as the cause of his death. Her words pierce my heart. We are all unhappy. But will not that be an additional motive for you, my son, to return and be our comforter? Your dear mother. Alas, Victor! I now say, thank God she did not live to witness the cruel, miserable death of her youngest darling. Come, Victor, not brooding thoughts of vengeance against the assassin, but with feelings of peace and gentleness that will heal, instead of festering the wounds of our minds. Enter the house of mourning, my friend, but with kindness and affection for those who love you, and not with hatred for your enemies. Your affectionate and afflicted father, Alphonse Frankenstein, Geneva, May 12th, Seventeen blank blank. Clerval, who had watched my countenance as I read this letter, was surprised to observe the despair that succeeded the joy I at first expressed on receiving news from my friends. I threw the letter on the table and covered my face with my hand. My dear Frankenstein, exclaimed Henry, when he perceived me weep with bitterness, are you always to be unhappy? My dear friend, what has happened? I motioned him to take up the letter, while I walked up and down the room in the extremest agitation. Tears also gushed from the eyes of Clerval as he read the account of my misfortune. I can offer you no consolation, my friend, said he. Your disaster is irreparable. What do you intend to do? To go instantly to Geneva. Come with me, Henry, to order the horses. During our walk, Clerval endeavoured to say a few words of consolation. He could only express his heartfelt sympathy. Poor William, said he, dear, lovely child, he now sleeps with his angel mother, who that had seen him bright and joyous in his young beauty, but must weep over his untimely loss, to die so miserably, to feel the murderer's grasp, how much more a murder that could destroy radiant innocence. Poor little fellow, one only consolation have we, his friends mourn and weep, but he is at rest. The pang is over, his sufferings are at an end for ever. A sod covers his gentle form, and he knows no pain. He can no longer be a subject for pity. We must reserve that for his miserable survivors. Clerval spoke thus as we hurried through the streets. The words impressed themselves on my mind, and I remembered them afterwards in solitude. But now, as soon as the horses arrived, I hurried into a cabriolet, and bade farewell to my friend. My journey was very melancholy. 
first I wished to hurry on, for I longed to console and sympathize with my loved and sorrowing friends. But when I drew near my native town, I slackened my progress. I could hardly sustain the multitude of feelings that crowded into my mind. I passed through scenes familiar to my youth, but which I had not seen for nearly six years. How altered everything might be during that time! One sudden and desolating change had taken place, but a thousand little circumstances might have done by degrees worked other alterations, which, although they were done more tranquilly, might not be the less decisive. Fear overcame me. I dared no advance, dreading a thousand nameless evils that made me tremble, although I was unable to define them. I remained two days at Lausanne, in this painful state of mind. I contemplated the lake. The waters were placid, all around was calm, and the snowy mountains, the palaces of nature, were not changed. By degrees the calm and heavenly scene restored me, and I continued my journey towards Geneva. The road ran by the side of the lake, which became narrower as I approached my native town. I discovered more distinctly the black sides of Jura, and the bright summit of Mont Blanc. I wept like a child. Dear mountains, my own beautiful lake, how do you welcome your wanderer? Your summits are clear, the sky and lake are blue and placid. Is this to prognosticate peace, or to mock at my unhappiness? I fear, my friend, that I shall render myself tedious by dwelling on these preliminary circumstances, but they were days of comparative happiness, and I think of them with pleasure. My country, my beloved country, who but a native can tell the delight I took in again beholding thy streams, thy mountains, and more than all, thy lovely lake? Yet, as I drew nearer home, grief and fear again overcame me. Night also closed around, and when I could hardly see the dark mountains, I felt still more gloomily. The picture appeared a vast and dim scene of evil, and I foresaw obscurely that I was destined to become the most wretched of human beings. Alas, I prophesied truly, and failed only in one single circumstance, that in all the misery I imagined and dreaded, I did not conceive the hundredth part of the anguish I was destined to endure. It was completely dark when I arrived in the environ of Geneva. The gates of the town were already shut, and I was obliged to pass the night at Secheron, a village at the distance of half a league from the city. The sky was serene, and, as I was unable to rest, I resolved to visit the spot where my poor William had been murdered. As I could not pass through the town, I was obliged to cross the lake in a boat to arrive at Plainpalais. During this short voyage I saw the lightning playing on the summit of Mont Blanc in the most beautiful figures. The storm appeared to approach rapidly, and on landing I ascended a low hill that I might observe its progress. It advanced, the heavens were clouded, and I soon felt the rain coming slowly in large drops, but its violence quickly increased. I quitted my seat and walked on, although the darkness and storm increased every minute and the thunder burst with a terrific crash over my head. It was echoed from Salev, the Juras, and the Alps of Savoy. Vivid flashes of lightning dazzled my eyes, illuminating the lake, making it appear like a vast sheet of fire. Then, for an instant, everything seemed of a pitchy darkness, until the eye recovered itself from the preceding flash. The storm, as is often the case in Switzerland, appeared at once in various parts of the heavens. The most violent storm hung exactly north of the town, over the part of the lake which lies between the promontory of Belrive and the village of Coppet. Another storm enlightened Jura with faint flashes, and another darkened and sometimes disclosed the Mole, a peaked mountain to the east of the lake. While I watched the tempest, so beautiful yet terrific, I wandered on with a hasty step. This noble war in the sky elevated my spirits. I clasped my hands and exclaimed aloud, William, dear angel, this is thy funeral, this is thy dirge. As I said these words, I perceived in the gloom a figure which stole from behind a clump of trees near me. I stood fixed, gazing intently. I could not be mistaken. A flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me. Its gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspect more hideous than belongs to humanity instantly informed me that it was the wretch, the filthy demon to whom I had given life. What did he there? Could he be, I shuddered at the conception, the murderer of my brother? No sooner did that idea cross my imagination than I became convinced of its truth. 
my teeth chattered, and I was forced to lean against a tree for support. The figure passed me quickly, and I lost it in the gloom. Nothing in human shape could have destroyed the fair child. He was the murderer, I could not doubt it. The mere presence of the idea was an irresistible proof of the fact. I thought of pursuing the devil, but it would have been in vain, for another flash discovered him to me, hanging among the rocks of the nearly perpendicular ascent of Mount Salève, a hill that bounds Plain Palais on the south. He soon reached the summit and disappeared. I remained motionless. The thunder ceased, but the rain still continued, and the scene was enveloped in an impenetrable darkness. I revolved in my mind the events which I had until now sought to forget, the whole train of my progress towards the creation, the appearance of the works of my own hands at my bedside, its departure. Two years had now nearly elapsed since the night on which he first received life, and was this his first crime? Alas! I had turned loose into the world a depraved wretch, whose delight was in carnage and misery. Had he not murdered my brother? No one can conceive the anguish I suffered during the remainder of the night, which I spent, cold and wet, in the open air. But I did not feel the inconvenience of the weather. My imagination was busy in scenes of evil and despair. I considered the being whom I had cast among mankind, and endowed with the will and power to effect purposes of horror, such as the deity which he had now done, nearly in the light of my own vampire, my own spirit let loose from the grave, and forced to destroy all that was dear to me. Day dawned, and I directed my steps towards the town. The gates were open, and I hastened to my father's house. My first thought was to discover what I knew of the murderer, and cause instant pursuit to be made. But I paused when I reflected on the story that I had to tell. A being whom I myself had formed and endued with life had met me at midnight among the precipices of an inaccessible mountain. I remembered also the nervous fever with which I had been seized just at that time that I dated my creation, and which would give an air of delirium to a tale otherwise so utterly improbable. I well knew that if any other had communicated such a revelation to me, I would have looked upon it as the ravings of an insanity. Besides, the strange nature of the animal would elude all pursuit, even if I were so far credited as to persuade my relatives to commence it. And then, of what use would be pursuit? Who could arrest a creature capable of scaling the overhanging sides of Mont Salève? These reflections determined me, and I resolved to remain silent. It was about five in the morning when I entered my father's house. I told the servants not to disturb the family, and went into the library to attend their usual hour of rising. Six years had elapsed, passed in a dream but for one indelible trace, and I stood in the same place where I had last embraced my father before my departure for Ingolstadt. Beloved and venerable parent, he still remained to me. I gazed on the picture of my mother, which stood over the mantelpiece. It was an historical subject, painted at my father's desire, and represented Caroline Beaufort in an agony of despair, kneeling by the coffin of her dead father. Her garb was rustic, and her cheek pale, but there was an air of dignity and beauty that hardly permitted the sentiment of pity. Below this picture was a miniature of William, and my tears flowed when I looked upon it. While I was thus engaged, Ernest entered. He had heard me arrive, and hastened to welcome me. "'Welcome, my dearest Victor,' said he. Ah, I wish you had come three months ago, and then you would have found us all joyous and delighted. Come to us now to share a misery which nothing can alleviate. Yet your presence will, I hope, revive our father, who seems sinking under his misfortune, and your persuasions will induce poor Elizabeth to cease her vain and tormenting self-accusations. Poor William, he was our darling and our pride. Tears, unrestrained, fell from my brother's eyes. A sense of mortal agony crept over my frame. Before, I had only imagined the wretchedness of my desolated home. The reality came on me as a new and a not less terrible disaster. I tried to calm Ernest. I inquired more minutely concerning my father, and her I named my cousin. She, most of all, said Ernest, requires consolation. She accused herself of having caused the death of my brother, and that made her very wretched. 
that since the murderer has been discovered— The murderer discovered? Good God, how can that be? Who could attempt to pursue him? It is impossible. One might as well try to overtake the winds, or confine a mountain stream with a straw. I saw him, too. He was free last night. I do not know what you mean, replied my brother, in accents of wonder. But to us the discovery we have made completes our misery. No one would believe it at first, and even now Elizabeth will not be convinced, notwithstanding all the evidence. Indeed, who would credit that Justine Moritz, who was so amiable and fond of all the family, could suddenly become so capable of so frightful, so appalling a crime? Justine Moritz? Poor, poor girl, is she the accused? But it is wrongfully. Everyone knows that. No one believes it, surely, Ernest. No one did at first, but several circumstances came out that have almost forced conviction upon us, and her own behaviour has been so confused as to add to the evidence of facts a weight that, I fear, leaves no hope for doubt. But she will be tried to-day, and you will then hear all. He then related that, the morning on which the murder of poor William had been discovered, Justine had been taken ill, and confined to her bed for several days. During this interval, one of the servants, happening to examine the apparel she had worn on the night of the murder, had discovered in her pocket the picture of my mother, which had been judged to be the temptation of the murderer. The servant instantly showed it to one of the others, who, without saying a word to any of the family, went to a magistrate, and, upon their deposition, Justine was apprehended. On being charged with the fact, the poor girl confirmed the suspicion, in a great measure, by her extreme confusion of manner. This was a strange tale, but it did not shake my faith, and I replied earnestly, You are all mistaken. I know the murderer. Justine, poor good Justine, is innocent. At that instant my father entered. I saw unhappiness deeply impressed on his countenance, but he endeavoured to welcome me cheerfully, and, after we had exchanged our mournful greeting, would have introduced some other topic than that of our disaster had not Ernest exclaimed, "'Good God, Papa! Victor says that he knows who was the murderer of our poor William!' "'We do also, unfortunately,' replied my father, "'for indeed I had rather have been forever ignorant than have discovered so much depravity and ungratitude in one I valued so highly. "'My dear father, you are mistaken. Justine is innocent. "'If she is, God forbid that she should suffer as guilty. "'She is to be tried to-day, and I hope, I sincerely hope, that she will be acquitted. This speech calmed me. I was firmly convinced in my own mind that Justine, and indeed every human being, was guiltless of this murder. I had no fear, therefore, that any circumstantial evidence could be brought forward strong enough to convict her. My tale was not one to announce publicly. Its astounding horror would be looked upon as madness by the vulgar. Did anyone indeed exist, except I, the Creator, who would believe, unless his senses convinced him, in the existence of the living monument of presumption and rash ignorance which I had left loose upon the world? We were soon joined by Elizabeth. Time had altered her since I last beheld her. It had endowed her with loveliness, surpassing the beauty of her childish years. There was the same candour, the same vivacity, but it was allied to an expression more full of sensibility and intellect. She welcomed me with the greatest affection. "'Your arrival, my dear cousin,' said she, fills me with hope. You perhaps will find some means to justify my poor guiltless Justine. Alas, who is safe if she can be convicted of crime? I rely on her innocence as certainly as I do upon my own. Our misfortune is doubly hard to us. We have not only lost that lovely darling boy, but this poor girl, whom I sincerely love, is to be torn away by even a worse fate. If she is condemned, I never shall know joy more but she will not, I am sure she will not, and then I shall be happy again, even after the sad death of my little William. She is innocent, my Elizabeth, said I, and that shall be proved. Fear nothing, but let your spirits be cheered by the assurance of her acquittal. How kind and generous you are! Everyone else believes in her guilt, and that made me wretched, for I knew it was impossible, and to see everyone else prejudiced in so deadly a manner rendered me hopeless and despairing. She wept. Dearest niece, said my father, dry your tears. If she is, as you believe, innocent, rely on the justice of our laws, 
and the activity with which I shall prevent the slightest shadow of partiality. End of chapter 7 Please don't forget, if you donate during the month of December, you will be entered into the December drawing for the fabulous Genminus Craft Lit Charm. And congratulations again to Lisa of Taos, New Mexico, who is our November winner. I hope you all stay healthier than I am and have a great holiday season. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great one. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Go to knittingoutloud.com. Listen while you knit. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.